build the culture. Culture is how things get done in an organization, how people communicate, how leaders build and develop teams, and how coworkers collaborate or don't. It defines the employee's experience and it heavily influences the customer's experience. It is important to understand that every organization has a culture and values, whether or not they are explicitly recognized. Your employees will figure out the culture just by observing what gets rewarded. It is better if you make a proactive attempt to define, understand, and communicate key elements of your culture, though. Every leader says he wants a high-performance culture, but the test is when performance seems to come into conflict with other positive values. The challenge with culture is that while most CEOs recognize that it is critically important, they don't have a model to understand it or a method for measuring it. Culture is a social construct, not a process that can be engineered or a spreadsheet that can be analyzed. It is influenced by the varied behaviors, attitudes, and personalities of the people within it, which is one reason it's so crucial to hire well. However, neurosocial research has shown that despite our differences, we all ultimately seek out the same things in our interactions with others. I sold a company not long ago, providing a great return for shareholders. However, because the company had been operating for only two years, many of the employees had not vested in their stock options and so would receive little from the deal. I wanted to be fair, to reward them for their contributions to building a valuable company, as well as provide them with some security. Most of the employees would not be continuing with the company after the acquisition. So I visited with all the employees prior to the official announcement to find out what they thought would be a fair severance package. I received answers of three months to six months. After getting that feedback, we decided to give all the terminated employees one year of severance. I felt that this was appropriate because the investors were receiving a great return and the employees would need time to find other employment. When I made the announcement, everyone was very appreciative of the unexpected severance. However, several of the employees were still noticeably uneasy. Even though they had more money in the bank than they reasonably expected, they were disconcerted by the fact that they would soon be unemployed. All of these individuals were talented professionals who would have no trouble finding new jobs, but they were still very uncomfortable with this situation. What explains this reaction? Reward versus threat. Only when we are no longer afraid do we begin to live. Dorothy Thompson I found the answer in a paper written by David Rock called SCARF, a brain-based model for collaborating with and influencing others. Rock also wrote a book that covers the subject called Your Brain at Work. In the paper, Rock provides a model to help us understand the way humans interpret social interactions. The fundamental idea is that the same brain networks that seek to maximize reward and minimize threat for primary survival needs are also used in any situation where people interact. This means that when employees are working, they will constantly evaluate their environment through this filter. If they encounter a reward response, they will tend to engage in a particular stimulus, and if they experience a threat, they will disengage. For some of the employees who were losing their jobs, their brains were simply more focused on the threat of unemployment than on the reward of a year of security. The SCARF model lists five common areas of social experience that can elicit the reward-threat response – status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. I was a fan of Daniel Pink's drive before I learned of David Rock's model, and I immediately saw parallels between Pink's model and Rock's. Autonomy is obviously the same, mastery can be linked to status and fairness, and purpose can be linked to relatedness and certainty. Understanding Rock's more subtle five factors and the adjusting decisions, policies, and leadership approaches accordingly will help you build a culture in which people feel respected, secure, trusted, included, and treated fairly that will influence employee engagement. Why is employee engagement so important in driving a high-performance culture? It turns out that the more creative and intellectually challenging the work, the more employee engagement predicts performance. And numerous studies have revealed that the subtle effects of the reward-threat response can dramatically impact cognitive performance. Simply put, if employees feel threatened in any way, they will be less effective in solving complex problems. If your business depends on workers' intellect more than their brawn, you will want to focus on employee engagement to maximize productivity. And that means building a culture in which the perception of threats is minimized and the perception of rewards, those I listed earlier, is maximized. By understanding the real motivation of everyone in your organization, you will be able to build a high-performance culture. Status. 
Status is the first and potentially most significant of the five areas. Michael Marmot, in his book, The Status Syndrome, explains that social status has a huge effect on your health and well-being. What Marmot shows is that among otherwise very controlled groups, small differences in status have measurable effects on your lifespan. The concept of social status is woven deeply into our emotional makeup. Seniority, positions, titles, and so on are important to employee engagement. Here's a common example. For startup CEOs, the number of direct reports one has increases as the company grows. One day you realize you need to adjust the organizational structure so you have fewer direct reports because you can't effectively manage that many people. This means that people who once reported to you will now report to somebody else, possibly somebody who was already in a leadership position. Even if no titles or workflow really change, people who once reported to you and don't any longer are going to perceive a threat to their status. Conversely, promoting someone directly to your staff even without a change in pay or title can cause a significant reward response. As CEO, you may have wondered why such seemingly insignificant things as the location of someone's office or whether a person was invited to a meeting have such a large impact. Each of these and many more small decisions directly impact a person's perceived status in an organization or on his or her team. Issues of status can be doubly dangerous when combined with other aspects of the model, such as fairness. Perks can trigger a threat response from employees in both areas. The problem with perks in general is that they divide the workforce into classes, those that get a certain perk and those that don't. For a team to perform at the highest possible level, everyone knows that the team members should have a one-for-all and all-for-one attitude. This attitude is really hard to develop when employees are split along class divides. No one expects the CEO to have the same office as the receptionist, but if the CEO feels the need to have an executive wing constructed, it will certainly cause some grumbling. You would think that things like separate executive eating areas and parking spots would have disappeared decades ago, but they still exist in some companies. In many large companies, the ultimate perk is use of the corporate jets. I have seen CEOs put a travel ban on all the employees while the executive team is flying around in private jets at $10,000 per hour. Most people do not want to be led by someone who seems to make a habit of separating herself from the people she is trying to lead. Titles can also be problematic, but there's really no avoiding them. I've heard employees complain that they are at least as good as someone else who has a title they want. Frankly, early in my career, I might have told them to quit their whining. Now that I understand the uncontrollable and deeply-seated threat response they may be experiencing, I look for more creative ways to handle such issues. Can I do other things to enhance their status? Can I include them in more management meetings or seek out their opinion on important issues? One company I interacted with recently chose not to put titles on employees' business cards because titles don't really matter much in their organization. Culturally, there are many things you can do to help eliminate or reduce status threats. I personally believe in private offices for everyone. Yep, everyone. I recognize this isn't always possible, but I've been able to make it happen more often than not. Professional development opportunities should be offered to all employees because reward circuits are activated when people feel that they are learning and growing in their jobs and are offered the same opportunities as others. Being as transparent as possible with all information is also critical. Access to information is a sign of status. Whenever possible, which means almost always, I make sure that everybody has access to the same information, barring any legal limitations. Certainty. Certainty is another area that can affect employee engagement. The human brain likes to feel that the future is predictable. We get through every day by doing many things from memory. We brush our teeth, we drive to work, and we open a door by recalling patterns that have been ingrained in our neural pathways. When we have to learn a new pattern, for example, driving to a new office, our brain has to work harder and therefore is less able to focus on other tasks. Uncertainty puts our brains on constant alert because we can't be confident in what will come next. This drains energy and makes creative tasks much more difficult. Having been through several acquisitions, both as an acquirer and an acquiree, I can testify that uncertainty in that process can cause almost all productive work to halt. Some companies make organizations an almost regular occurrence. A reorg starts as a rumor, and then over time, employees are informed of the changes that are being made. The process drags over months, creating constant uncertainty and stress, and reorgs almost always create status threats as well. It is shocking to me that CEOs don't understand the harm they do 
as these communications drag out. Uncertainty can also be caused or diminished by basic operational or leadership approaches. For instance, employees not knowing what criteria will be used to evaluate their performance can cause constant friction in their creative activities. A clearly communicated, consistently applied employee performance model will help people feel secure in their own performance. A strong model also helps minimize status threats because people are more likely to think promotions are warranted. Open book management is a common approach in many high-performing cultures. By giving employees as much information as possible, the normal uncertainty of business is reduced. Of course, there is always uncertainty in business, as in life. A good culture minimizes that uncertainty as much as possible through smart leadership. Autonomy. The third area in the SCARF model is autonomy. People want to feel control over their own work and some control over their environments. The less control they feel they have, the more stressed they feel and the less effective they will be on tasks requiring advanced mental processes. Often, when people leave lucrative corporate positions to start their own enterprises, they are seeking control over their work environment. They want to feel that they have some control over the issues that affect them. Obviously, being part of any team reduces the autonomy of the members to some extent. The challenge is providing as much autonomy as possible within a corporate structure. Corporate policy is one area in which autonomy should be carefully considered. I'll explore this issue in more detail in the upcoming chapter. Relatedness Relatedness is the fourth item in the SCARF model. It was important for human survival for the brain to be able to quickly recognize others as friend or foe. Almost all people like to be part of a group of people pursuing a common purpose. Once again, the creative innovative aspects of the brain function best when we're engaged with people we trust, whom we consider friends rather than foes. It is well known that teams perform better when they have experienced a bonding event. Whether it is a sports team that pulls out an unlikely victory or a sales team that closes a huge sale, the experience of overcoming obstacles together creates a highly positive connection with the other members of the team. This sense of relatedness breaks down the barrier of distrust. It is easy for small companies to create a high sense of relatedness in their culture because everybody is in it together. As a company grows past the size where people can maintain personal relationships with everyone, the CEO must actively look for ways to increase relatedness. One way to do so is to develop and communicate a clear mission, vision, and values. Developing the we're all in this together mindset through focused communication, goal setting, and celebrating achievements is key. In fast-growing companies, new employees arrive every month, sometimes every week. To maintain a sense of relatedness, make new employees part of the team right away. At no time is an employee's stress level higher than the day he starts a new job. He feels uncertain. He has likely met only a small number of the people he will be working with. Quickly engaging the employee to decrease uncertainty and increase relatedness is important to facilitating a productive work environment. We implemented an onboarding process for new employees, which included making sure they had everything they needed to get started on their first day. I personally taught a 10-hour course each quarter for all new employees that covered the technology and market of the company, department welcome lunches, shirts with the company logo, and meetings with every executive, help new employees quickly feeling connected to their team and the company as a whole. The more connected the employees feel in the workplace, the easier it will be to drive high performance. Stronger cultures are also more open and less political. Workplace politics can divide employees. When politics are minimal, people are motivated by performance. And if performance is what counts, then top performers will always be able to fit in, even if they are outliers. If the culture is weak, the person on the outlying edge, in terms of personality or social behavior, becomes disruptive. In my companies, I have hired some people who were considered to be quite odd. They behaved differently, thought differently, and had curious social behaviors. But they still worked well in the company because we had a strong culture that could accommodate their oddity and help everybody feel a sense of relatedness by focusing on performance, goal achievement, and vision. Fairness. The last trigger addressed by the SCARF model is the concept of fairness. The desire for fairness shows up early in our development, anyone who has raised children can tell you that, and stays with us no matter how many times we are told the world is not fair. A sense of unfairness can often arise from a lack of consistently applied rules in matters of work assignments, pay, promotions, benefits, rewards, or the use of limited resources. The more objective the rules are perceived to be, and the more involvement employees have in decisions, when possible, the less chance there will be that employees will feel they are being treated unfairly. Pay in particular is one of the most contentious areas for employees. 
The real problem arises when employees think decisions on pay are made arbitrarily or that management is showing unjustified favoritism. I have always tried to make pay decisions based on objective data rather than subjective opinions. First, I discoupled pay from the review process so that discussions of performance would be less influenced by thoughts of raises. I tied starting pay and regular raises to data on the value the person had in the market. This was determined as objectively as possible using industry-specific salary surveys. It was amazing how using this objective data took much of the angst out of the regular pay discussions. Fundamentally, people aren't motivated by pay, but they can be demotivated by it if they think that they or others in the organization, including the CEO, are paid unfairly. The SCARF model provides a set of criteria that explains why a particular culture may be more productive than another and gives a CEO a method to move an existing culture in the right direction. In light of this model, I now understand why many of the approaches and policies I have seen in high-performance companies work so well. Creating a strong culture requires more than just a few policy changes. It requires a consistent and holistic focus on all the factors that affect employee engagement. Unfortunately, most CEOs struggle with the soft stuff, according to former Campbell Soup CEO Douglas Conant. Your EQ, emotional quotient, has to keep up with your IQ, he told Bloomberg Businessweek. He's right. Understanding what motivates you as well as your team is critical to success in the CEO role. In fact, according to an article in the Wall Street Journal, business schools are starting to test for emotional intelligence to identify future stars. Emotional intelligence is defined as the ability to identify, assess, and control the emotions of oneself, of others, and of groups. According to Daniel Goleman, who has done seminal work in this area, emotional intelligence requires self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship management. And understanding how we and others are driven to seek rewards and avoid threats in the five areas of social experience can put us on the right track. Now that we have a model for developing a high-performance culture, the next question many CEOs ask is, can I measure my culture? Well, like many things, you may not be able to measure culture specifically, but you can measure the outcome, employee engagement. In 2001, I read, First Break All the Rules, What the World's Greatest Managers Do Differently, by Marcus Buckingham and Kurt Kaufman. This was the first business book that satisfied my desire for significant analytics that support employee performance. The research for the book was conducted by the Gallup organization and resulted in the now-famous Gallup Q12. You can closely correlate the responses to 12 simple statements with superior workgroup performance. Workgroups that have better scores on the Q12 deliver higher employee retention, higher customer satisfaction, higher productivity, and higher profits. After using this model for more than a decade, I am convinced that it is highly accurate and that it reflects the strength of the culture. The biggest proof of this methodology occurred after a much larger firm acquired one of the companies I had founded. We had been conducting the Q12 survey every six months for years and had been closely monitoring the results and working to improve any weak areas. The scores had been consistently positive and had been stable, with little variation for the last two or three years. When the ownership transaction closed, the acquirer initially made very few changes in personnel. The vast majority of people were still working for the same boss, doing the same thing six months after the transaction closed, although I was no longer running the operation. The biggest difference is that they were now part of a much bigger entity, with less defined vision, mission, and values. I expected the survey results to move slightly after the acquisition, of course, but I was shocked when the results came back. Employee engagement had dropped 30% to 40% across the board. In six months, the organization's workforce had gone from highly engaged to a very mixed level of engagement. Although people make a company, good people are not enough to make a good company. Without clear vision, mission, and values, good employees have no sense of purpose or relatedness. They will not engage, and productivity will suffer dramatically. The biggest difference I see between highly successful companies and less successful companies is not necessarily the quality of the people, it is surprising to me how many great people stay with poorly run companies, at least initially. The biggest difference between great companies and mediocre companies is the quality of the leadership within the organization. Without the proper leadership, even the best people will gradually disengage and lose direction. By leveraging the extensive work done by the Gallup Group, every organization can measure the engagement of their employees and quantify the impact of culture in terms of the performance of the organization. For too long, CEOs have talked about culture as a theoretical construct 
without finding ways to manage it as they would any other critical asset. With these tools, culture should become a critical part of your toolbox as a CEO. In the rest of this section, I'll explore the key challenges we face as we work to build a high-performance culture, leveraging procedures and values effectively, and focusing on relationships while achieving results. Rules-based versus values-based. Where 100 people think, there are 100 powers. If 1,000 people think, there are 1,000 powers. Soichiro Honda. You may have heard this story before, but I love it. One day, a researcher put five monkeys in a cage. In the middle of the cage, he placed a ladder that provided access to a string of bananas that were tied to the top of the cage. Monkeys are pretty smart, so they quickly saw the bananas and recognized that the ladder was the only way to reach them. However, as soon as one monkey would begin to climb up the ladder to try to get to the bananas, the researcher would spray all the monkeys with ice-cold water. It took only a few tries for the monkeys to realize that going up the ladder was not worth getting sprayed by the water, so they began to avoid the ladder. The researcher then placed one of the five monkeys with a new monkey that had never experienced being sprayed by the water. As soon as he was placed in the cage, the new monkey began to eye the bananas and then started to head for the ladder. This time, instead of spraying the cage with water, the researcher watched as the other four monkeys rushed the newcomer and dragged him off the ladder. They understood the linkage between climbing the ladder and getting sprayed with water. The researcher continued to replace monkeys in the cage with monkeys that had never been sprayed before. Each time, the same scenario developed. The new monkey would eye the bananas and begin to climb the ladder, only to have the other monkeys beat him down. Eventually, all the monkeys in the cage were monkeys that had never experienced the ice-cold water, but they still avoided the ladder and would keep any newcomer off of it. After a while, one of the monkeys turned to another monkey and said, Why do we always beat up a monkey if he tries to go up the ladder? The other monkey replied, That's just how we do things around here. While obviously fictionalized, this story is loosely based on research done by psychologists and social learning experts throughout the latter half of the 20th century. It has been used many times to describe how rules develop in organizations and carry on, even when no one knows why the rule was created in the first place. As companies mature, they often transition from a pure values-based approach to a more rules-based approach to getting things done. The whole process of growing from startup to successful company with a long-term future is one of learning what works and trying to institutionalize those successes. Early in the life of a company, no one, including the CEO, knows exactly how things are going to work. Every time a new challenge occurs, the founding team jumps in and figures out how to handle the situation based on their unique approach to the market and their collective experience. This is often a competitive advantage for startups as they invent new and better ways to engage their customers. Of course, this process doesn't scale. As the business grows, more and more transactions have to happen automatically for the business to prosper. At this point, a balance must be struck between trying to create a rule-based process for everything and trying to make every decision based on the values of the organization, while still balancing the needs of all the stakeholders. On one hand, going too far over the rules-based side will lead to an organization that is inflexible, with employees like the monkeys in the story often doing things that no longer make sense. On the other hand, a purely values-based organization would spend so much time figuring out how to act in each situation that they would struggle to get much done. The question for the CEO is, how do you achieve the efficiencies of a rule-based culture while leveraging the flexibility and openness of a values-based culture? Using what we've learned about employee engagement and the SCARF model, the best path is to do what is necessary to ensure that employees feel respected, secure, trusted, aligned, and treated fairly. In this chapter, I'll offer some methods for striking the balance. The bureaucrat and the anarchist. For some, the process is everything. Like the micromanaging CEO who wants to be involved in everything, the bureaucrat CEO obsesses over the manner in which everything gets done. Process is king, and following process is more important than anything else. This CEO wants workers who will act like robots and can carry out the same tasks over and over again. While there are certainly some businesses that might lend themselves to this approach, most workers will find this kind of job to be most dissatisfying. Tasha Yurik, author of Bankable Leadership, described a 10-page dress code she once experienced that specified everything from the length of pants to the openness of female employees' shoes, 
and how she spent a considerable amount of time finding ways to subtly break the rules to see if anybody would notice. Keeping employees engaged with this overly oppressive rules approach would be almost impossible. As changes occur in the market, it will be hard for the company to adjust. Top-down processes are slow to change. Without input from and flexibility for the frontline employees, the business will suffer. The bureaucrat CEO never evolved her leadership skills beyond the traditional approach to management, which emerged with the start of the industrial age and the advent of assembly line manufacturing. The paradigm dictated that management was responsible for the thinking and frontline employees were responsible for the doing. Management was responsible for the creation of processes that workers were then required to implement. Management's job was to monitor how accurately the workers executed the processes and make corrections as necessary. This approach was very efficient when the job of the employee was simply to repeat the same process over and over. Unfortunately, this top-down management approach is still practiced today in many companies, even when it is totally inappropriate to the type of work being done. Finding your balance. 1. Do you have processes that were drafted by management for how to do almost everything in your business? 2. How long are the policy or procedure documents for individual departments in your company? 3. How often do you review or adjust the procedures in your company? Who is involved in the process? New companies are often founded by entrepreneur CEOs who wanted to escape the bureaucracy of corporate America. While this can be strong motivation, it can also lead to a management approach that says all process is bad. You primarily see these anarchist CEOs in small companies because when all process is eliminated or avoided, it becomes very difficult for the business to scale and grow. Every task takes longer than it should, employees never feel certain about their work or their performance, and it is impossible to establish meaningful metrics because everyone does things differently. While employees will initially feel empowered because they are given wide latitude to perform their jobs, they eventually become discouraged as the chaos of the workplace overwhelms their ability to get things done. They may try to invent their own processes, but that is difficult to pull off without management support. Finding your balance. 1. Do you eschew process in order to prevent bureaucracy? 2. Do you have documented policies and procedures? How long are the documents? 3. What metrics do you consistently track, other than basic financials? What do they tell you about how consistently work is being performed within or across teams? Clarity and Empowerment Researchers say that 28% to 45% of employees in the United States are knowledge workers. However, I define a knowledge worker as anyone who must make decisions based on a unique set of conditions that change from situation to situation. I think that applies to a much higher percentage of workers than the researchers allow. With the daily customer demands for better products and services, companies need most of their employees to make smart judgments to achieve the best outcome. This is how companies foster innovation and succeed in the market. If you want to build a high-performance culture that leverages the efficiencies of process and the flexibility of values-based decisions, try the following approaches. Create values specific enough to guide decisions and apply them consistently. Values are crucial to a high-performance culture because they can promote autonomy while also building a sense of relatedness. However, they have to be aligned with the business beliefs of the CEO. They have to be behavioral and universally applicable, and they have to guide every decision, not just some decisions. If values have to be applied consistently to be effective and to create a foundation for the culture, then values must communicate the unique views of the CEO. If the CEO does not buy into the values, how can she expect any other employee to do so? It is critical for employees to understand how the CEO views the world of the company, what the CEO believes should be prioritized in day-to-day -day operations, particularly when those views may be different from what employees might expect. In this way, employees are guided toward decisions that are consistent with those the CEO might make. Do you have specific values? Are they abstract concepts? Or are they specific enough to provide real guidance when an employee is struggling to make a decision in a new or challenging situation? If you do a quick search for company values, you will find that many of the Fortune 500 proudly display them on their websites. The problem with many of these statements is that they don't really provide any guidance in decision-making. Here is a list from one company 
leadership, collaboration, honesty, accountability, passion, diversity, and quality. Employees don't need to be told to be honest. Not that I'm saying everyone will be honest. I'm not naive. I do know telling employees that honesty is a core value doesn't necessarily help them make the most practical day-to-day -day decisions. In the previous section, I wrote about Jack Welch's grid of values and performance. Ken Blanchard, author of The One-Minute Manager and many other management and leadership books, has adapted the idea to build a model for a high-performance, values-aligned culture. He charges that values must be defined in behavioral terms. Without clearly defined behavioral guidelines describing exactly how a great corporate citizen behaves, each leader and staff member can define those values as it suits their personality, role, and activities. Values defined in behavioral terms describe how team members should behave as they pursue their team goals. I have seen many companies whose values tilt more in the direction of one stakeholder or another. Young startups are often employee or customer-centered, while many large established companies tend to become very shareholder-focused. For a company to reach its full potential, I believe it is critical that the company properly consider how the values will be applied in achieving the interests of all stakeholders. At NetQOS, we had documented values that were specific enough to help guide decisions. For instance, we attract, cultivate, and retain exceptional talent. We act as company owners and hold ourselves accountable. And we are easy to do business with. I would go over the values with every new employee and emphasize them in many of my company presentations. However, I'm not sure employees understood the power of the values until they were tested. In late 2002, we had to let go seven employees to get our expenses in line with revenue, as sales remained slow due to the recession. Earlier in the year, before we realized how badly things were going, we had made an offer to a college student to start in January 2003. We thought she was an exceptional candidate and were excited when she accepted our offer. When it later became obvious that we were going to have to fire some employees, many people assumed we would rescind our offer to this college student and save an existing employee. It was clear to me that this was not consistent with our first value. The existing employee who would be saved had been with us for a couple of years and, while a competent worker, had not proved to be an exceptional talent. Though it was harder to fire the existing employee because of the stronger emotional connection we had to him than the college student we barely knew, the right answer was to keep the college student and let the existing employee go. The student turned out to be an exceptional talent and was instrumental in the success of the company. It is often easier to be consistent with your culture and values when things are going well. At many companies, their true value comes out when things get tough. You can only achieve the benefits of having strong, clear values as you see them to guide every decision, not just some decisions. Anytime a decision is made by a member of management, employees will assume that the CEO sanctions it. This is one reason the values performance grid is so essential for hiring or retaining the right managers. It's also critical to have an anonymous feedback mechanism so that you can hear from all parts of the organization. Employees need to be able to alert the CEO about issues with management and any other concerns without worrying about repercussions. If your team is healthy, they should be able to come to you directly without worry. But some employees come to a company with baggage and have learned to keep their mouths shut. While employees may not always be right in their assessment of a situation, getting their feedback will let you know where potential issues could develop. If you put such a feedback mechanism in place, all comments should go directly to you and not be pushed off on lower-level staff. Let those who have to follow the rules make the rules. In a recent Harvard Business Review article titled Creating the Best Workplace on Earth, researchers Bob Goffey and Gareth Jones described their three-year quest to identify the traits of the very best workplace, an organization that operates at its fullest potential by allowing people to do their best work. They identified six imperatives based on hundreds of interviews with executives. Number six was no stupid rules. If you want to avoid a rules-based culture that breeds disengagement yet still operate efficiently, change who owns the rules. If the rules are owned and dictated by management, frontline employees will mindlessly execute those rules, whether they make sense or not. How many times have you experienced this as a customer? A company has a particular rule that makes sense in most cases, but doesn't fit a particular situation. The employee is powerless to make a change and doesn't even seem to care about the issue. Instead, 
the paradigm should be flipped. Management should facilitate the development of the rules and processes, but the employees in the group performing the function must take ownership. Ownership implies the ability not only to set the rules, but also to change them based on circumstances. The role of management changes from dictating procedures to verifying that the procedures created are consistent with the goals and values of the company. The manager is a conduit that ties the frontline employees to the rest of the organization, aligning their efforts to achieve bigger picture goals. For employees to effectively own the rules of their group or team, they must understand the why of what they do from a bigger picture perspective, which demonstrates the need for a strong vision and mission. But having ownership of their procedures also helps build an understanding of why they do what they do on a more granular scale. Understanding this why is critical if you want creative, innovative, productive, and valuable employees. Instead of being merely programmable robots, these employees can leverage their natural problem-solving abilities to improve things across the business. Who knows better how to do a particular task than the person who does it over and over again? Driving this why thinking throughout the organization will pay tremendous dividends in the productivity of the business. Of course, some corporate policies will always be necessary, and employees may not always have a say when those policies are developed. A company is not a democracy. However, I have found that the CEO can do many things to help people feel a sense of control, even with broad policies, by making them flexible. For instance, at NetQOS, I created a policy that every new employee would receive $250 when he or she started to decorate his or her office. This small gesture allowed employees to create their own unique work environments. We also had a flexible work hours policy and an unlimited vacation policy. If you want engaged employees, give them control when possible. Align corporate level policies with values. Corporate policies and procedures often just pile up over the years, one on top of the other. As CEO, you will be held responsible by the employees for all the policies of the company and even the procedures of their teams whether you created them or they were in place for years before you arrived. Examine the policies and procedures at your company and how they're developed and look for situations in which policy isn't aligned with stated values. Build a transparent work environment. Do your employees have the information they need to understand the true state of the business and how best to contribute to its success and their own? Some CEOs foster a culture of secrecy by holding on to information and encouraging other leaders to do the same. However, if you want to build a high-performance culture, employees should have access to every bit of information that might help them do their jobs better, make better decisions, or innovate better solutions. Whether they are being guided by values or procedures in any given situation, they need knowledge too. Transparency is a hallmark of most high-performance cultures, yet in many private companies, Financial information is guarded like the queen's jewels. It's like asking someone to play in a football game, but not allowing them to know the score. You may have heard of the concept of flow, developed by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, called the father of positive psychology by some. Essentially, flow is a mental state of uber-engagement in or focus on an enjoyable activity, during which you feel motivated and energized. Wouldn't it be great to have all your employees exist in this state most of the time? Well, one of the requirements is immediate feedback that helps a person know if and how he should change his behavior to continue to succeed. I'm extrapolating the idea a bit, but if you want engaged employees, you need to share information that helps them understand how successfully they are performing. If they don't have that feedback, in a variety of forms, they'll disengage. If you want employees to emotionally engage in and be committed to the business, share all the details about how the business is doing. It builds a sense of autonomy as well as certainty because they aren't left to guess about the future prospects of the business. I also made it standard policy in my companies that anyone could attend any meeting they wanted, unless specifically excluded. Obviously, some discussions of employee pay and other personnel issues must be kept private, but the vast majority of meetings don't deal with these sensitive issues. I would invite my entire staff to board meetings as well. Many of them had never been in a board meeting, and by seeing my interactions with the board and knowing what interested the members, they felt more tied to the shareholders. The sense of openness I tried to create reduced status threats and helped people feel more certain about future events. When a culture is secretive, 
Employees can waste energy and creative resources worrying and gossiping about unknowns, or they perform poorly because they don't have the necessary information to make the best choices. Efficiency and creativity, predictability and flexibility. Any good leader sees the value in all of these potential attributes of a company. Growth and profitability require that you know when and how to build each into the culture and operations of your company. As your company grows and changes, though, your focus will have to shift. But be careful that you don't inadvertently cause your high performers to disengage along the way. Finding your balance. 1. What are your organization's values? Consider a recent decision and determine if the values, as they're currently written, provided clear and appropriate guidance. 2. Are all of your decisions aligned with the company's values? 3. Who makes the rules in your organization? How would you change the current pattern of operations and management? 4. What information is shared with employees in your organization and how? Do you believe that all employees have the information they need to make decisions that lead to company success? Requiring versus Relating You can make more friends in two months by becoming interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get other people interested in you. Dale Carnegie I started my first business, the custom PC business, with capital that my wife, Kathy, had saved prior to our marriage. Borrowing money from your wife is one way to provide extra incentive to make sure your business is successful. I managed to make a little money, but I felt that I was never able to do things right because I lacked enough capital to invest in the best people. The foundation of my most successful company, NetQOS, was a network management product and methodology that Kathy had developed. We were able to secure $11 million in funding in 2000, just before the tech bubble burst. NetQOS was my chance to run a business right. I could hire the best people. At the time, I was only 35 years old, and I hired many people who were older and more experienced than I was. I'm sure some of them looked at me and thought they could do a better job as CEO than I could. It didn't help that our offering had been developed by my wife. While she clearly needed a business partner, they probably thought I was just riding on her coattails. I knew I had a lot to learn, but I had been running businesses and studying for this job my whole adult life. I had strong ideas about how the business should be run and the culture I wanted to build. Inevitably, issues would arise with some of the older management team that would test my authority and management capabilities. We made it our top priority to hire the best talent into every available position. When you hire really talented people, they expect the other people around them to be just as talented, and that includes their managers. Unfortunately, hiring experienced and successful executives does not necessarily mean that they will be great managers. While I had some hiring experience, I'd never before hired management-level people. Through discussions with employees and our employee surveys, it became obvious to me that some of our executives could improve their management skills. They weren't incompetent or ineffective, but I knew we could do better. The problem I faced, however, was that these people were much older and more experienced than I was and felt there was no need to change their style. Because they had always been successful, they had convinced themselves that their methods were the right methods. Two particular executives provided a study in contrasts. One was the consummate people person and focused exclusively on the needs of his employees from both a professional and emotional perspective. He knew the names of their kids, their career goals, and everything going on in their lives that might affect their work. The problem was that when it came to the actual work of the employees and delivering results for the business, he was totally disconnected. He believed that if everyone was happy, the work would take care of itself. In many cases, this is true, and employees liked working for him. But over time, performance issues arose in his area. If an employee was a weak performer and needed coaching, this executive couldn't help. He didn't track the details of projects and therefore didn't know when the issues were developing. I tried to guide him, but it was difficult for me to teach a different mindset. The other executive was a master strategist. He had no relationship with his people and little impact on his team. He was so out of touch it was almost like having no one in the position at all. He was a valuable member of the executive team from a strategic perspective, but he provided no coaching, no mentoring, and no value to the employees. Most leaders tend to lean in one direction or another in terms of where they focus their attention, results, or relationships. I have learned that any of us can be more balanced in our approach if we understand where our natural tendencies lie and put in the effort to improve our management and leadership skills. The best friend and Attila the Hun. For some CEOs, building relationships comes naturally. 
They have no problem engaging personally with employees at all levels of the organization. Employees like the attention they receive from these personable CEOs and return the affection. Their desire for relatedness is fulfilled, and they get a status bump every time the CEO delivers kind words of praise. There's nothing wrong with this, but there is a problem when the relationship impacts running the business. Although the media often portray CEOs as hard-charging, win-at-all-costs creatures, I've observed many CEOs who failed because they were everybody's best friend. Their primary motivation is the desire to be liked, and that will hamper their performance of core responsibilities. They become so close to employees that they struggle to make changes in personnel or provide any critical feedback. If the CEO cannot hold people accountable for a high level of performance, the organization suffers and gradually sinks to mediocrity. Employees see the company beginning to fail, lose their sense of security, and begin to jump ship. Finding your balance. 1. Have you ever struggled to make a personnel move because of your feelings for the people involved? How often has that happened? 2. When was the last time you gave critical feedback to an employee? 3. Do you tend to move people around the organization to avoid firing them? Do you let your managers handle all the dirty work? Attila the Hun as CEO is the character often portrayed in movies and the press as the prototypical CEO. While I won't argue that this type of CEO doesn't exist, I will say he is probably less common than the public perception. One reason is that after his behavior becomes known, it becomes hard for him to attract competent employees. For Attila, nothing is ever good enough. He requires exceptional performance at all times while treating employees like minions. This focus on outcomes without building up any personal relationships convinces employees that he really doesn't care. They perceive threats at every turn, no status, certainty, relatedness, and fairness. Attila never earns the trust required to have real influence in the organization. While he may think that he's driving the ship, He's not building buy-in from employees and is often getting far less than their best effort. The top performers will usually flee, knowing they will be better treated in another environment. Finding your balance. 1. How do you let your employees know that you care about their success as much as your own? 2. Do employees discuss personal problems with you? 3. How many employees would follow you if you were to leave to become CEO of a different company? Building Relationships achieving results. When I was struggling to figure out how to coach my two very different executives, I discovered a great book by Peter E. Friedis titled The 2R Manager, When to Relate, When to Require, and How to Do Both Effectively. The fundamental theory of the book is that the best managers relate well to their employees, but also set strong requirements for performance. There is no balance to be struck between the two. You have to do both well. But in either area, relating or requiring, a manager can be too weak or too strong. For example, while it's important to relate to your employees, you can't become their best friend or managing them will be difficult. And while many managers are scared to require enough because they want to be liked, no one wants to work for Attila the Hun. These two ideas tie directly to statements on the Gallup Q12. For example, relating well can be linked with statements such as these, my supervisor or someone at work seems to care about me as a person. In the last seven days, I have received recognition or praise for doing good work. Requiring well can be linked with statements such as these. I know what is expected of me at work. In the last six months, someone at work has talked to me about my progress. At work, I had the opportunity to do what I do best every day. My associates or fellow employees are committed to doing quality work. Fridas provides a simple assessment in the book that can be given to a manager's reports so that she can understand where she is on the spectrum in these critical areas. The 2R Survey The following survey was adapted from the 2R Manager by Peter Friedis. Questions 1, 3, 4, 6, 8, and 10 are statements about relating, while questions 2, 5, 7, 9, 11, and 12 concern requiring. You should look at both an average score across all respondents for each question and a total score for each group of questions to see how you score in each area. Score your manager in each of the following statements on a scale of 1 to 5. 1. Never. 2. Seldom. 3. Sometimes. 4. Usually. 5. Always. 1. Relates to employees easily. 2. Sets clear priorities. 3. Includes employees in decisions. 4. Listens to employees. 5. 
insists on high-performance standards. 6. Empathizes with and understands employees. 7. Is comfortable with disagreements and conflict. 8. Encourages and compliments employees. 9. Creates a sense of urgency. 10. Shows a need to be liked by employees. 11. Is comfortable making demands of employees. 12. Addresses performance problems quickly. It's critical, if you want honest feedback, to find a way to guarantee that the responses are confidential. You might consider using an online survey tool that can be set up to make all responses anonymous. You can also give the responsibility of administering the survey to another person in the organization, such as someone in human resources. Another great resource that takes a similar approach to Freitas's, because both are based on essential management research that began in the 1960s, is from Bankable Leadership by Tasha Yurik. Her model addresses the fact that we tend to pit good relationships against great results. But the solution is to understand that you can have both through simple, modern management practices, which she covers in the book, offering many helpful tools and approaches. She also has an assessment on her website, bankableleadership.com, that allows you to ask others to assess your skills. Often managers are surprised to discover that their employees perceive them to be strong in one area, requiring or relating relationships or results, but weak in the other. Very few managers will be well-balanced naturally. Our personalities and experiences usually push us in one direction or another. The 2R survey or the bankable leadership assessment can help you discover your natural tendencies so that you know where to focus your efforts to improve as a leader. These tools also do an excellent job of identifying the best managers, so it may be something that leaders who are responsible for coaching other leaders may want to review. Anytime I was considering moving someone from an individual contributor position into a management position, I thought about how she would perform across the two dimensions of requiring and relating. If I didn't think she would do well in one area or the other, I coached her on the issue before moving her. This is one reason to identify the A's in your organization and ensure that they are being coached so that they can grow their skills and move into appropriate positions over time. Let's face it, we all like to be liked. There is a term for people who have no interest in what others think of them, sociopaths. However, we also think we have to forego being liked in the workplace in order to earn respect and to achieve goals. What we have learned from management theory and practice over the last five decades is that it isn't necessary to forego one for another. We need to relate well to the people on our teams and also do a good job of requiring that they fulfill responsibilities and meet goals. Understanding our personal natural tendencies toward one end of the spectrum or the other helps us understand how to build on our strengths and address our weaknesses. Finding your balance. 1. Do you believe you are better at requiring or relating? Why do you believe this? 2. How often do you think your leadership style affects the culture of your team? 3. Have you ever asked members of your team to fill out an anonymous questionnaire about your leadership style and effectiveness?